today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Revelation, revel, reveal, unveil. That's what apocalypsos means. It's an unveiling. It's a revelation of what's going to happen in the future. And it, <laughs> I wouldn't want someone reading a book about my end that was like that. He doesn't want you reading it. And he surely does not want you to know about what needs to happen at the time of the end. We've all sought a glimpse into the future at some point in our lives. We want the comfort of knowing everything's going to be okay. So why isn't Revelation a more popular book if it speaks to the future? As Pastor J.D. reminds us today, it's because Satan will always try to deter and distract you from what is good and beneficial. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Luke chapter 24 as he begins his message, Jesus is our only escape. Today is the celebration of the resurrection and I would like to draw your attention to the Gospel of Luke, the 24th chapter. You can follow along, beginning in verse 1, where Luke, by the Holy Spirit, writes, Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid, and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then, verse 9, they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven, speaking of the disciples, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But verse 12, Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself, at what had happened. So 
I want to talk with you today on this Resurrection Sunday about how it is that Jesus is our only escape out of this wicked world. While I realize this may sound like a rather odd title for a Resurrection Sunday sermon, it's actually the purpose of the resurrection. If you really think about it, this is the reason that Jesus came the first time, such that in His resurrection He provided a way of escape. He rose again from the dead. He defeated death and is now, as we're going to talk about, seated at the right hand of the Father. Not for long. In preparation for today's sermon, I went back into my archives and I want to share with you some notes from back in 2009. The title of my sermon was, The Message is the Same, The Times are Different. The message is the same, but the world we live in has changed, and even now is changing, so much so that it will never be as it was. It seems we've crossed the line, turned the corner, and there's no looking back or turning back. We've passed the point of no return. As such, this is 2009. This Resurrection Sunday is different because of the intensity and the urgency of the desperate times in which we live. At the risk of sounding provocative or sensational, we are on the brink of disaster, the likes of which man has never before seen. This world is doomed and damned, heading for sudden destruction at breakneck speed, and Jesus is our only way out of all of this. What a perky sermon on a... Well, thank you so much for that, Pastor. Well, I share that to say this. What we are witnessing in the world today is exactly what we're told the end would be. And it's for this reason that this Resurrection Sunday celebration is arguably the most important than it has ever been in times past. And if you'll kindly allow me to, I'd like to expound on the seriousness and the urgency of all of this for the remainder of our time together today. By the way, this has a very good ending. I'll start with a very simple explanation that sums up the entirety of human history, starting in the beginning with the book of Genesis. Actually, the book of Genesis sums it all up in three ways with the creation of man, the sin of man, and the redemption of man. And not only does the book of Genesis sum it up in three ways, it does so in the first three chapters, culminating at its zenith 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, if I could encourage you to join me there. This is actually the first prophecy in the Bible. It's also affectionately referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, which is a word that makes me sound like I, you know, (laughs) it's just a fancy word for first gospel. It's the first time that the gospel is recorded in the pages of Holy Writ. So you've got in just one verse, the first prophecy and the first mention of the gospel, both of which point to the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, the whole Bible, it all points to the person of Jesus Christ, starting in Genesis 1.1. Did you know that? In the beginning God created man in His image. Let us, notice He didn't say, let me create man in my image. No, let us, that's the Trinity. That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He was there before the foundation of the earth, before the creation of the earth. Well, when you get to Genesis 3.15, we have this powerful, profound prophecy when God pronounces the curse on the serpent. And listen to what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, I like crush better. Some of your translations render it. Doesn't that sound better? He will bruise. No, he's going to crush your head. Sorry. And you shall bruise his heel. Do you realize that we have here in this one verse a prophecy about the crucifixion and the resurrection? So this bruising of his, speaking of Jesus' heel, is the crucifixion. But in the end, Jesus, the seed of the woman, is going to crush your head. Uh, I want to see that. (laughs) When's that going to happen? Well, it started with the resurrection. If I can say it like this, it was a crushing blow to the enemy who sought from the very beginning to thwart the first coming of Jesus Christ. This is why, by the way, he possessed Cain demonically to murder Abel. He thought that the seed of the woman, by the way, stop right there, the seed of the woman? The woman doesn't have the seed, the man does. The woman has the egg. That's the miraculous birth of the Savior. And it would come from Eve, the seed of the woman, from her lineage, her bloodline, if I can say it like that. We talked about this in the prophecy update in detail, by the way. So Satan, who, by the way, knows the Bible better than you and I know the Bible. You know that, right? So he knows Scripture, and he knows Bible prophecy, And here he has this prophecy about how this coming Savior, the seed of the woman, is going to crush his head. 
Well, we'll see about that. Uh, we're going to go ahead now and start the process of killing the seed. So he starts with Abel, thinking that it's going to come from Abel. It does not come from Abel, it comes from Seth. And you can trace from the beginning in Genesis all the way through history, all the attempts, and he hasn't stopped trying, by the way, <laughs> to thwart. He didn't succeed. He will never succeed. He did not succeed in thwarting the first coming of Christ. He will not succeed in thwarting the second coming of Christ and the rapture prior. He's still going to try. So after this failed attempt with Cain and Abel, just fast forward to Pharaoh, who's possessed to have all of the Hebrew boys cast into the Nile to their certain death, save one. Moses, a picture, a type of Christ as the deliverer. And then you can fast forward to the book of Esther, by the way, for those of you that were with us through that study. What a book. I mean, wow. Haman, demon-possessed, gets the king to issue an irreversible edict to destroy all of the Jews. God raises up Esther, not her Hebrew name, for such a time as this. And Mordechai says to her, if, if you don't go to the king, deliverance will come from another. Because you see, what Satan's trying to do is he's trying to thwart the first coming of the Savior. And if he can destroy all of the Jews, Jesus can't come. But he didn't succeed. Well, let's fast forward. There's many other attempts all throughout history. Let's go into the New Testament when the Savior is born. Herod, demon-possessed. I mean, it's pretty graphic, but it, it's the truth. Had all of the Jewish boys under two years of age, I mean slaughtered, would be a, the best word I can use for lack of a better one. Why? Because apparently he's been born now. We've got to kill him before he goes to the cross. And he didn't succeed. And that's when Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Egypt, where they're protected. And even into the last century, dare I say, Hitler. What is it about names that start with H? Haman, Herod, Hitler, just saying, demon-possessed to exterminate and eliminate all of the Jews. Why? Because if he were to succeed, he'll never succeed, then Jesus cannot come. Because you have to understand that when Jesus comes at the second coming, after the seven-year tribulation, which is after the rapture, which is before the seven-year tribulation, the Jews have to call upon him, the one whom they had pierced. Again, Satan knows the book of Revelation. Listen, if you had a book like that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written about you, you'd pretty much know that book pretty well. Which is, by the way, I think one of the main reasons why Satan is successful in keeping Christians from reading the book of Revelation. 
He doesn't want to. Oh, it's a complicated book. It's so apocalyptic. Actually, that's what the word revelation means. Apocalypsos in the Greek. I know this is deeply profound, but revelation, revel, reveal, unveil. That's what apocalypsos means. It's an unveiling. It's a revelation of what's going to happen in the future. And it, <laughs> I wouldn't want someone reading a book about my end that was like that. He doesn't want you reading it. And he surely does not want you to know about what needs to happen at the time of the end. Well, not only is Genesis 3.15 the first prophecy in the Bible and the first mention of the gospel, it is actually also a prophecy about the Lord's return. Because this crushing of Satan's head, his head isn't crushed yet. He's still alive and well. But when his head is crushed, it will be ultimately fulfilled after the millennial reign, the kingdom age of 1,000 years here on this earth. Maybe I can just give you a quick thumbnail sketch of how it's all going to go down. The next event on God's prophetic clock is the rapture. It can happen anytime. I mean anytime. After the rapture, the Antichrist is revealed. The seven-year tribulation starts when Daniel 9.27 is fulfilled, and there's a seven-year agreement that is enforced and confirmed. In the middle of that seven years, the Antichrist will set himself up in the rebuilt temple, declaring himself to be God. He'll commit the abomination that causes desolation. It will be at this juncture that the Jewish people will realize, this is not our Messiah. This is the false Messiah, the Antichrist, in place of Christ. And that's when they come to a saving knowledge of their true Christ, their true Messiah. And then they flee Jerusalem, as Jesus describes in detail, I might add, in Matthew 24, to the place that's prepared for them. Many believe Petra in modern-day Jordan for the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Then at the end of the seven-year tribulation is the second coming. It's been said, I think rightfully so and aptly so, that at the rapture Jesus comes for us, at the second coming Jesus comes with us. His bride by His side. We're coming back with Jesus after the seven-year tribulation. And then the whole house of Israel is saved. And then we enter after the second coming into the 1,000 year reign. Satan's head's not ultimately and finally crushed yet. Well, where is he? Well, it's very interesting actually. We're told that an angel, unnamed angel, I happen to think that it's just an intern in heaven, is sent down to take Satan and cast him and chain him in the bottomless pit for the entirety of 1,000 years. The reason I say it like that is because we do err greatly when we give Satan too much credit. He is not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He's a created being. And if we go to one extreme or the other, we either dismiss how powerful he is or we overstate how powerful he is. And he's, he's good with both. Either one's fine. 
But if we give Satan too much power, we make him God's opposite. And I think it was by God's design that we would have that detail recorded for us in Scripture about an unnamed angel. It's kind of like God's looking around going, hey, we got an intern, send him down there. Don't you need Gabriel and Michael for this? No. I know it's a little dramatic, but you get the point, right? So effortlessly this unnamed angel goes and cast Satan into the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. And we with Christ rule and reign for 1,000 years on earth, and earth will be like it was before sin entered the world. And then after the millennium, Satan is loosed. If you can believe it or not, (laughs) some people will actually choose Satan at the end of the millennium. What? Listen, there are going to be people that are going to somehow survive the seven-year tribulation. Hebrews, as we just got done learning when we were in Hebrews, says that we're appointed, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So if they survive the tribulation, many will, living outside the system, the beast system, then the second coming happens, they are going to enter the millennium. And they will have bodies like Adam and Eve had. And they're going to live for hundreds of years and have children and children's children and children's children. Is this too much? Okay, so let's get past the millennium. Then comes the final judgment, the final battle. Not much of a battle. Jesus just, that's it. That's when his head gets crushed and he's cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is a prophecy. And it's the gospel. It's the good news. And here's what's sad. As simple as the gospel is, many still don't fully understand it. Let me explain. The good news, or gospel, is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, and don't stop there. He's coming back one day. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And if you're anything like me, and I suspect that you are, I could use some good news like that. (laughs) It wasn't that long ago when we were studying through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, verse by verse. And one of the things that came screaming out of that study, especially with 1 Thessalonians, was that it was the first epistle that the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. And he writes it to this church in Thessalonica, a church that he started, and some believe spent no longer than maybe three months there. Then he was basically run out of town, and he ever since that time, longed to go back. He loved this church. This was his first letter that he was inspired to write. And it was a young church with new believers. And the Apostle Paul had the audacity to teach them Bible prophecy. You've been listening to another edition of In Spirit and Truth. Thanks for tuning in to study the Word of God. 
The Easter season is a time that Christians look forward to with anticipation, looking to celebrate the amazing, miraculous work that God did here on earth. What he did was nothing ordinary. No, in fact, raising from the dead was something unheard of. And the things tied to his resurrection were even more incredible than the miracle itself. Jesus' self-sacrifice for sin and then his resurrection following meant that every person on earth could be rid of sin and have new life too. This is what causes Christianity to stand out from any other religion. So not only does Easter represent Jesus' resurrection, but it's a reminder to each individual that you have the opportunity of life eternal because of what Jesus did. What a day to celebrate. If you'd like to listen to this message again, head over to our website, calvarychapelkaneohe.com. While you're at our website, feel free to access more of Pastor J.D.'s teachings like the one you heard today. There are many topics covered that might be of interest to you. You can also hear Pastor J.D.'s prophecy updates. Again, our website is calvarychapelkaneohe.com. If you're interested in listening to these messages on the go, search for In Spirit and Truth in the iTunes Store. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. You'll find links to those on our website. Once again, that's calvarychapelkaneohe.com. Join us next time as Pastor J.D. will teach through God's Word right here on In Spirit and Truth.